In recent years, many people in Canadian society have become more conscious of the damaging effects of colonialism and racism in our country. As we confront the problem of hatred and prejudice in our society, what principles, attitudes, and actions can help us to build greater social solidarity? Hi, my name is Laura Friedman, and I'm excited to host this second episode in a new season of The Public Discourse, produced by the Office of Public Affairs of the Baha'i Community of Canada. The theme of this podcast series is A Vision of Oneness, inspired by the centenary of the passing of Abdu'l-Baha, a central figure in the Baha'i faith who devoted his life to promoting the faith of his father. When he visited Montreal in 1912, he spoke repeatedly about the need to eradicate racial and religious prejudice and to work for international peace. In one public talk, he said, Prejudice, whether it be religious, racial, patriotic, or political in its origin and aspect, is the destroyer of human foundations. He told his audience that these prejudices and differences should be laid aside. In our conversation today, we have two guests who are going to help us to think about what we need to do as a society to confront hatred and prejudice and promote the realization of the oneness of humankind. So I'd like to welcome our guests, Mohammed Hashim and Jelena Bighorn. I am so happy that you're able to join us today, and I'm really excited about the conversation we're going to have. And I was wondering if we could start with some introductions. So uh, Jelena, would you like to start? Uh, yes, I would. Thank you. I am Jelena Bighorn. I am of Lakota and Chickasaw heritage, originally from the United States. I've been living in uh, the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples, our, our dear relatives, for maybe the past over the past 20 years. And I'm very grateful to be in the in the area of Vancouver, working as an educator for the past about 14 years. Wonderful. I'm so glad you're with us today. And Mohammed? Hi, well, thank you for having me. My name is Mohammed Hashim. I'm the executive director of the Canadian Race Relations Foundation, uh, which is a crown corporation under the Canadian uh, Department of Canadian Heritage. And I'm located in Mississauga, Ontario, which has been the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit. And for thousands of years, you know, we've worked, um, you know, the Indigenous people have, have lived, inhabited, uh, and cared for this land and continue to do so today. And in particular, I want to acknowledge, you know, the territory of the Anishinaabe, the Huron-Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, the Ojibwe-Chippewa peoples, and the, and the land that is home to the Métis, and most recently the territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. Thank you, Mohammed. I'm, I'm really glad you're here with us today. So I'd actually like to start with you. This year, Canada Day was preceded by tragic and heartbreaking news, a racially motivated attack on an innocent family in London, Ontario, and the discovery of the unmarked graves of children on the grounds of former Indian residential schools. You made a statement reflecting on the contrast between this news and the celebration of Canada Day where you said that Canada is a country that has the strength and humility to continually evolve and get better, and it is not a country of mere aspiration. I wonder if you can expand on this. What do you think are the sources of strength and humility that can help us to get better? So Canada Day came around this year. I don't think anybody in my office really was feeling very patriotic at the moment. So we originally reached out to um, a friend of our organization named Carrie Newman, who's a professor at UBC, but he's created 
Um, he's an indigenous artist. He's a master carver. So the statement that we wrote is actually from both of us when we edited it, edited it like 50 times. And I think that, you know, what we brought to this conversation and, and this letter was us reflecting upon um, the deep pain that exists in society. And I think that when we look, like, you know, the 215 kids were first discovered, we did a poll and we kind of just asked Canadians how shocked and disappointed or or betrayed you felt. And it was it was really daunting to see how how difficult a moment that was um, for Indigenous communities across this country. Because I, I mean, I think everyone knew, but then finding that was just incredibly painful. But I'll let you know Jelena talk about that more. I think for the rest of the country who are not Indigenous, most people were shocked. They didn't know. They thought they knew a bit of it, but they didn't know the depth of it. And I think that, you know, every country will evolve over time. You know, does is, has everything that Canada done been horrible? No. Has Canada done horrible things? Yes. Are we, like, how do we acknowledge what the truth is? And how do we reconcile within ourselves for a better future? And honestly, I, I, I don't want us to be a country of mere aspirations where we just talk about the things that we want to do better in life. I think we need to acknowledge how we got there and the people that we've put down and left behind intentionally. And how do we pick everybody up to move forward? Do you have any examples that you've seen of that? Just glimmerings or glimpses of that? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I I think that there's, you know, when you when when you talked about you know the the four people getting killed in, um, in London, Ontario, that was immediately after the Kamloops discoveries, like that. Was, so there was literally it was like two weeks um, after that that had happened. So you know what I what I what gives me hope was that you know people are finding uh, each other's pains. They're sharing them. They're sharing in moments of pain with each other, significantly more so than before. And the level of solidarity that I see amongst, you know, like black community members and Muslim, like, you know, and and all of those who like I interact with on a regular basis, like this level of solidarity is so high, which gives me a sense of hope, honestly, because I think that that's how we find the common threads that bind us together and that's how we actually move forward together. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. You know, when you speak of hope, I always I always go to the younger generations and those who are coming after us <laughs> and what, what it is that we're teaching them, what it is that we're leaving behind and the legacy or maybe the not so admirable legacy that they are inheriting. So, Jelena, you're a high school teacher, and I know you think a lot about how to help your students envision a society that has eliminated racism and prejudice. What are the facts about Canadian history that you think we need to confront collectively in order to rebuild our society? That's an excellent question. I have spent a lot of time thinking about how to how to work with young people and to learn from them as well, because I think they have a very true, true sense of what this world needs to be. I've also learned in that process that it's necessary to think paradoxically. 
So on the one hand, yes, there there is solidarity. And I agree so much with Mohammed that I have witnessed different communities coming together and sharing pain and beginning that healing process. And in our in the Lakota culture and, and many other Plains cultures, we we use the medicine wheel. And there are many different versions and they're all correct. And in the in those teachings, it describes how humanity was one. We are one one family, we're all relatives, and we were separated to the four corners of the earth to gain mastery over the four parts of the human being, the mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual. And the intent was always that the creator would have us come back together and to share those gifts and those insights. In in the interim of that process of gaining knowledge, each group experienced horrendous pain and trauma and suffering. And now coming back together, you can witness communities that are that can share those stories and can share in the healing process. But we also have to face the reality that there are resistors, that there are those in the community who do not want to do this work. And then, then the question becomes how, how to bring them in. So your, your original question was around what facts. That facts work for some. <laughs> I can remember so clearly a, a young, a young Lebanese uh, boy in my class in taking BC First Nations 12, coming in with very little understanding of, of Indigenous history in British Columbia and just, you know, really paying attention and, and gaining some of the knowledge about the Indian Act and how unjust it is, the Royal Proclamation of 1763. And by the end, I just remember him so sweetly telling me how um, this course had really changed him and he was on the bus and in a neighborhood where there's a high Indigenous population and he saw an, an elder elderly indigenous man on the bus and he really liked his shoes <laughs> he really liked his kicks and this boy went over and started talking to this elder and saying hey I really like your shoes and they had this great conversation and to me that that's reconciliation that is the beauty of when somebody has the knowledge and the understanding and they can see what what indigenous people have endured through colonization and making that just that beautiful small effort so in that case facts Facts work, but I don't know that facts work for everyone. And and to be honest, I think there's a lie that's been told to Indigenous people. And the lie that was told was that if we shared our stories, if our elders shared what they went through in residential school, that it would cause a change. And that's not true. We have shared our stories again and again, and other communities have shared their trauma. And it becomes almost a, a, a fetish. Let's hear these these communities share their sad stories once again, because there is a large subset of humanity that does not want to deal with its own pain. And in order to engage with this, I think Mohammed said it so well, you have to deal with the pain. If I can jump in, I I think that people are sick and tired of, of promises of better, being better, and they want systemic change to, to be available to them. They need to feel that it's actually the system is changing, not just hear the words that probably the system is changing. Um, and I think that there's a significant amount of growing discontent um, around that. It can, and we just released a study last week that talked about race relations actually going down um, and that people's sense of expectations of a better future are lessening and that and are definitely less than two years ago. And particularly in their relationships with, you know, the police as well as the healthcare system and other places, that um, people, especially racialized Canadians, feel like they are less accessible or less um, promising. 
a future for them. So system, systemic changes is, is desperately needed. Like we need laws to change. Uh, and we need a you know, greater recognition around sovereignty for Indigenous communities, not just like, you know, recognition of things. Yeah, I would say education is doing its job. We know better, <laughs> right? We know, we know that systemic changes have to happen and we're smart enough to know that they aren't. Even with my students, I share, sometimes it's a burden. It's a burden I'm placing on them because now they understand how systems of oppression work and now they can see them. They're all around and they continue to repackage themselves in, in different forms, but it's the same outcomes. We have not seen dramatic changes in outcomes for indigenous, racialized, black students, even graduation rates. That's great if they have them, but what happens to them afterwards? How many of my Indigenous students who finally did graduate do I see 10 years later not alive for various reasons or living on the streets, struggling to get employment? So these these little benchmarks that are set, they don't really tell the whole story. Thank you both for outlining um, the very true and complex nature of, of, the, of this work and what everyone is facing, especially people of color, marginalized and indigenous communities. Um, this mentality of us versus them, like us and them, um, that really aggravates the situation or the ability to create some level of unity, right? Um, there's such different lived experiences. And so, Mohammed, one of the characteristics of our contemporary discourse around the elimination of racism and prejudice is the way it is increasingly constructed around these conceptions of us versus them. So how do you think we can get out of this us and them binary so that all people feel invested in the work of eradicating prejudice in our society? Uh, there's like, like us is not necessarily a bad thing. It's not us against them. It's us and us versus like just, just think about like the new immigrant story that comes that, that happens again and again every single day here in Canada. The new person comes here, they don't know, they can barely speak the language, they're looking for a job, they're looking for housing, they're trying to figure out how to get their kids into schools. And then, you know, they run into the store where somebody, like they hear somebody speaking their language and they're like, hold on a second, that's... That, that's a person who I need I need to speak to. And then they feel comfort and that, you know, just that language and understanding to say, let me let me talk to this person. And maybe they can point me to the right direction. And the other person's like, oh, hold on a second. You speak my language too? What? This is amazing. <laughs> like, <laughs> and maybe it's a rare one. Maybe it's not so rare one. But people find each other yeah. in order to gain strength. So us is not necessarily a bad thing. Us is a, is a place of strength. And I think that like the, the like the problem is when you know us is better than than you. And I think that you know that's where we get into uh, the sense of you know superiority. But I think that you can use us uh, as a really powerful uh, thing, not only for one's own communities, but also for for bettering society. Mm -hmm. You're asking us to drop the them and just focus on that and reframe what us means in that context. So it's not getting out of something, getting out of this binary, but just staying within it, but reframing the way that we see that. Yeah. I mean, like indigenous people, when we, like when colonizers came here, they just made a bigger table. 
(laughs) (laughs) Yep. Like, why don't we do the same again now? Like, extend the table. It doesn't need to be us versus them. And I think that if there is going to be an us, and there always will be an us, let's, let's use us as a power for good versus like a power to differentiate against. And this might be uh, getting in too deep, but what do you think it takes for an individual who might not be in that mode of the us that you're describing to get out of their us versus them or to extend the table? What is it that that individual needs to move one step forward and leave that mentality? Jillian, you want to take that? (laughs) (laughs) I will. It's a hard question. I can't. I've just seen it again and again that that those those who resist, those who don't want that place at the table, it's because they don't they don't feel love and they don't know what love is. And I've realized in in indigenous spaces where we are constantly using this concept of all my relations and calling each other back to our kinship relationship with one another, that it actually can bring up uh, hard memories because there are families that don't have that love between members. They don't have that that sense of, of honor and respect for one another. So as Indigenous people, we keep calling calling humanity back to these, these very high principles and it, it brings up memories of, of hurt and loss. But we haven't had that in our family or in our culture or in our communities. And so I have just found that to do this work with love, and that doesn't mean that it's not hard and it's not direct and it's not blunt. Because <laughs> I think raising children, I, I do give them guidance out of love to see them flourish. And so to come with that attitude towards those who are resisting this work, I think they don't, they don't quite know what to do with it because they've not been given that, that consideration. Um, but they, as I said, don't, let's not confuse love with, let's take the soft approach or that we're not denying that, that, horrible acts of racism are happening. But but love and forgiveness, I think, are are so key. And I look at what Indigenous people have suffered since the beginning of colonization, first starting with the with the epidemics that came and wiped out huge, huge numbers of our population. We didn't even have time to recover from those deaths. And then colonization continued with residential schools. But it's it's beautiful to see that in so many Indigenous spaces that there's a desire to forgive. And to create oneness again. Yeah. Like from my perspective, I think, you know, there's two real things that in terms of, you know, truth and reconciliation that I think are are key, are, are key in the work that I do at least is, you know, when we think about Quebec, we think of Quebec as a nation. It has its distinct language. It has its distinct culture that we mostly, you know, respect here in Canada. And I don't understand how, uh, we don't apply a similar thought frame to Indigenous nations, where there needs to be a greater sense of of just a recognition of sovereignty, and that's like that's where I think like the main thinking change needs to be, where it's not a colonial relationship; it's a it's a nation to nation relationship thinking. And then the second thing is, um, you know, I am a firm believer that joy is medicine to to pain. Um, and, and I think that we need to mainstream joy more. (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful. So this is great. I want to ask each one of you one final question. 
before I do, I want to return to remarks made by Abdu'l-Baha in his final public talk in Montreal. He expressed his hope for Canada in these terms, that it would become a prominent factor in the establishment of international peace and the oneness of the world of humanity, that it may lay the foundations of equality and spiritual brotherhood among mankind, that it may manifest the highest virtues of the human world. So those were Abdu'l-Baha's hopes for Canada more than 100 years ago. What would you say gives you, Mohammed, hope for the future of our country? I believe in people, uh, generally. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think people have done horrible things, but I think people are capable of doing incredibly good things too. And, um, and, I, and I feel confident about the future. I actually do feel confident about the future. Like and and I'm stuck in a lot of places that would be soul crushing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In your work, yeah. Yes, I, I am I am a federal employee. <laughs> I work for the federal government. Uh we like and you know, and we like we're the only organization that the federal government has created to address racism in Canada. So the work that we do across this country is very heavy. Very, very heavy. But um, I feel confident that I think like I just I just meet a lot of people who exude a lot of hope and pain. But I think that you know, not everything that we've created is good, and not everything that we've created is bad. Um, and I think recognizing the fact that we are flawed and that we can move forward, like, that we need to move forward, and we're going to continuously try to move things forward. I find hope in that. Well. Knowing the, the context you work in, the, the fact that you have hope gives me hope. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. Angelina, what gives you hope for the future of Canada? The, definitely it's children and it's the young people. They are, they are phenomenal. And when they are given the tools and they're given the knowledge, those historical pieces to understand why we are in the mess that we're in, they can see a clear way out. And we just need to make a path for them. We need to step back as the adults who are often through good intentions, we're still, again, we're still kind of using the tools that created this system. We're, we're, we're locked into it. So just to step back and to trust, trust the grassroots, trust the people that they know what is, what is best for them. And I've, I've watched just generations of young people come through my classroom and every year I, I'm amazed. I can't believe that they are coming in with such open hearts and such a desire to create that oneness. Thank you. That's a beautiful vision. Um, and thank you both for everything that you've shared and for speaking about joy and hope and also being uh, frank about where we're at and sharing the truth of things and the complexity of it and uh, reminding us of the things that are real in front of our faces that can't be denied. So thank you both for being here with us and look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. You have been listening to The Public Discourse, a podcast by the Baha'i Community of Canada's Office of Public Affairs. You can learn more about the Baha'i faith at baha'i.ca and follow the work of our office at opa.baha'i.ca, where you will find links to our social media handles on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube.